everybody. Welcome back to Crime Scene Queens. We are the show to listen to if you want to hear from real experts in the field. You know, the experts that maybe have a true understanding of the confidentiality and the respect for the deceased and their families. And we also believe in not exploiting victims. So on that note, I'm Shelly, your courtroom cat. So I am Laura, your crime scene investigator and field mouse. And I am super excited because we are back talking again about one of my very favorite subjects, something that I even focused on for my master's (laughs) degree. That's right. You can call me Master Laura from now on. Skulls. We are talking about skulls. (laughs) Not just squishy skulls, hard skulls, flexi skulls, lovely skulls, male skulls, Skulls female skulls. Fractured and need to be put back together again. Yeah. Yes. Skulls that are fractured and need to be put back together again. So before we dive into literally that exact topic, Shelly, I did want to finish off with one more fun fact to carry over from last week's episode before we start. Yeah. Before we start transitioning from kind of root science into actual cases that I've worked with skulls. So we are all skeletally female until we turn around 12 years old. Now, what I mean by that is, of course, you still have a Y chromosome when you're born. And this has nothing to do with gender identity. We are talking about XXXY, right? So we all are morphologically female. What that means is a lot of the indicators of sex that I discussed in episode one are not apparent. Because the bone hasn't developed in that way, a lot of the traits that we reviewed, a lot of that more robust nature that tends to occur in males does not appear until you start to become 12 years old. So are you saying that the skull changes shape? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, your entire body changes through adolescence. I mean, there's a reason why. You know, Mm preteens and like those early teenage years and even the middle and late teenage years, a lot is going on in their body. And then people say, oh, teenagers are crazy, yada, yada, yada. That's why we make all the mistakes that we're supposed to make when we're teens. There is not just hormonal changes that are triggering some of those skeletal developments. There Mm -hmm. is actual morphological change going on in your body. Which is super interesting to nerds like me. And me. And you, that's why we're friends and doing a <laughs> podcast together. So, you know, when, when you're talking about the skull not developing fully, it's kind of like when, you know, we're not finished growing. Well, me, I think I finished growing at like, I don't know, second, third grade, something like that. But Oh, you know, because you're tiny? Yeah, because I'm, you know, just, yes, half pint. So, but I think that, you know, you're talking about that the skull hasn't fully developed. So it grows just like our other bones do to make us taller. Accurate? Yeah, like there's, you know how like when a baby is born, a a lot of reasons. Yeah, like a lot of people are apprehensive around newborns because basically like you can feel that soft spot and everything is super pliable, which is exactly why a newborn baby is able to fit through the birth canal, you know, because of that ability to move. And in fact, something that just came to my mind is I remember when I was a new student studying human osteology, my professor had told this story about a woman who was standing outside of her apartment complex and she was on her cell phone and out of nowhere, a child fell on the ground. Oh 
my gosh. And she, yeah, and she looked down. Like a sack of potatoes, like just like, yeah, just like fell. Just plop, just plop. And Holy she was like, oh, hello. <laughs> and this was like a young child. And she said he looked at her, realized that he had fallen, and started crying. So that's because when the baby fell, she didn't go, yay. And, you know, exactly. Said, yes. Because that's right. what as she was shocked. Do. Yes. So she looks up. The baby fell like four stories. No. And survived. Yes. Yes. Oh, because mom yeah. had then presented, oh, and like started freaking out. Yeah. And it's because we are like children are a combination of fragile and flexible super pliable <laughs> yeah pliable. i mean like they have a good bounce right like yeah. i mean of i mean of course there's this whole other dynamic with like shaken babies but this was not the same like the kid was literally kind of like how when trees don't come down in tornadoes because they bend and sway because yeah. they're not too sturdy like you'll see like a skyscraper fall because it doesn't sway yeah but you can see that palm tree and that yes. thing just goes like top to mm-hmm. toes so, yeah, yeah, so I'll reference back to episode one when I said, you know, we're born with over 300 bones and then we end up with 208. So we actually have some built-in resilience with that ability to have a flexible body. Mm-hmm. So as we grow and that has all of those fusion points at the sutures that I mentioned yes. earlier in episode yeah. one about aging. Yes. Yeah, so that's where all that separation occurs. And actually, I mean, this might sound a little bit morbid, but since we're talking about it scientifically, I don't think it's going too far. But attending a baby autopsy is super intense. So huge trigger warning. If any of you have suffered child or infant loss, please like fast forward about 30 seconds. But infant bones are so thin and pliable that when you – in autopsy, when we see them, like you can literally hold them up and like see through them. They're they're nearly transparent. Yeah, yeah. Baby autopsies are not cool, by the way. Sorry. Like, it doesn't matter how seasoned you are. They're not cool. It's so awful. Right. So getting back to skulls, one story that uh, you just – that came to mind when you referenced putting them back together. So there are, as we have mentioned in previous episodes, cases that stand out. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And – Staying true to the nature of our show, I do know this victim's name. I'm not going to say her name because I don't know how her family feels, but she stands out. I was a student under the tutelage of my mentor, and we were working a case in northern Florida. And for some reason, this case and her story spoke to me very, very deeply. And the gist of it is she met a guy. Mm-hmm. She had a lot of self-esteem issues when it pertains to weight. Okay. And he was cute. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as a woman, I know exactly, or as a heterosexual woman, I know what it feels like to meet a guy and get really excited. Yeah. And maybe he's a little cuter than the guys you normally date. And that's a little bit like, ooh, right? Yes. So he does... What I think is, like, the worst part is he kind of sees her for a little while. Mm -hmm. Like, he sees her for a few weeks. He makes her... He courts her. Yeah, he makes her trust him, and he makes her feel special. And one day, Mm -hmm. he's driving her car, and I think he... It gives her the impression that he's taking her to some kind of surprise. And he brings her to the woods, and... 
she's walking in front of him and he fucking bludgeons her skull with a hammer. Oh, whoa. Yes, he strikes her, and um, I did the analysis on this, supported by my mentor, since I was a student, so she came behind me and confirmed my findings. I found seven strike marks to her skull. Wow. And he then steals her wallet and her car, and he drives from the northern Florida area to the Tampa area in her car, and withdraws all of her money, which, by the way, was less than $300. How does he have her ATM pin? Because she told it to him. Oh, boy. Okay. And he, like, steals her car, which, by the way, was not a valuable vehicle. I'm not going to, like, say the price of it so that I don't, like, socioeconomic shame anyone. Yeah. Yeah, Like, I don't want to, like, but put it this way. The car was not a Lamborghini, a Mercedes, a Lexus, a BMW. It was not any of those things. In fact, it was multiple tiers below that, and it was super old and not in great condition. So that really fucking pissed me off because why put her through the emotional turmoil of making her think you like her? Just kill her immediately. I mean, I know this doesn't make it better. Like, I'm not trying to say that her death, (laughs) like, I'm not trying to say that her death was, like, in any way going to be better. But, like, the fact that he dangled her and teased her and made her feel special and, like, all of that, like, just for some reason that hit deeper for me. Like, yeah, it's not better if she had met a stranger in a bar and she had died this way. But, like, it just was additionally cruel. Yeah, 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 because he was messing so, with her emotions and, yeah, it's like mental abuse. Mental abuse prior to the physical abuse and, yeah, jeez. Exactly. Thank you. And it was, I mean, the only thing I can say is I'm really hoping, never mind. Okay, I am I know that she experienced fear because based on the strike marks that I saw, mm-hmm. it came to the back of her head and then you can tell that she fell and then it comes to the side of her head. So you guys, I get that this conversation is really dark, but I'm just trying to explain my motivation behind what I did next. And I don't want, I want you guys to understand this case like really bothered me. I was very young when I did this. She wasn't much younger than I was when I did this case. And a few things stand out subsequently. The detective met us at the autopsy suite as we were with the medical examiner doing their postmortem. And he had said to me, I guess he felt safe telling me or I was the closest person to him. He's like, hey, I've spoken with her mother. Her mother would really like some of her hair. Now, I look down and see what I see. And there's not a strand of hair that's appropriate to hand over to the family. So I talk to the medical examiner. I cut some of her hair off. And then I go over to the sink and I start to wash her hair. Because what am I going to do? Say no? Yeah. Yeah. It was but I'm bloody also, and... Yeah. Yeah. It was gross. It uh-huh. was exactly how you would think it would have been. So I spend a decent amount of time, because there's obviously not like shampoo at the yeah. medical examiner's office. So I clean her hair. I do my best. I give it to the detective, and then my mentor was like, I think this needs to be your case. And I'm like, I think I'd like it to be my case. Mm -hmm. So what we end up doing is, because as our audience may or may not know, I don't know if we've addressed this previously, but decomposition occurs from the head down already. Mm -hmm. But since she had additional areas of trauma, 
Her postcranial body was relatively intact. However, her cranial area or her head was not. Soft tissue and skeletal material alike. So that is why a forensic anthropologist was commissioned. We go through the process of collecting her cranial material, and she is in, for lack of a better phrase, smithereens. Okay. I spent over 120 hours putting her head back together piece by piece. Like I glued it piece by piece by piece. And for since I'm assuming that a lot of our audience doesn't know this, I know that you have an image of what a skull looks like in your head. But what yeah. you're not seeing are all the teeny tiny bones that are inside of your skull. Correct. And that was a mess and her eye orbits were a mess and her nasal bones were a mess and her upper jawbone or her maxilla was a mess and I did not care. And it's very, very difficult when something is so thin to like glue it because it can essentially fragment in your fingers. Yeah. So there's mm-hmm. usually, you know, 22 to 28 bones, depending on what you're, you know, how many, what you're counting right. in the skull. Yeah. So how many do you think that you had that you were putting? Oh, like Shelly, I mean. Double that? Triple that? I, I can't. I mean, I would say in the hundreds, to be honest. Wow. There were, yeah, like there was parts because, because when she fell and he started to strike the side of her head, I want you to think about like a pitcher falling mm-hmm. to the side and the difference between hitting like the back of it while it's standing up and then having it flat on a surface laying like hot dog. Yeah. And then yeah, hitting it like it, it cause then it, the force. Yeah. It's then easier to shatter into multiple pieces as it becomes to, yeah. a lot more concentric mm-hmm. that had done something like it had split her mandible, even though the force was to her cranial vault, mm-hmm. it had like, you know, broken like her uh, temporal mandibular joint, which is the part of your jaw that hooks into your head. Like the lot it, when people have popping jaw, that's it's exactly. That yeah, exactly. Thank you. And like her mastoid process, which is in episode one where I had everybody feel behind their ears. Yeah. It had done a lot of damage to that. However, because the bones of the cranial vault, meaning the occipital, the parietals, and then Well, the temporals are really thin, but like those and the frontal bone, because those are so sturdy compared Mm -hmm. to the rest of the bones, I did have the strike marks. And a CSI will tell you that we can use things like concentric or circular or radial, which are the linear fractures that are inside of circular fractures to determine the order of strikes. So this is best described visually, but essentially what happens is Imagine that you shoot a window and there's a fracture pattern. Yeah. And then you shoot it again. The second strikes breaking fracture pattern is going to inter- be interrupted by the first. Mm-hmm. So that same theory applies to your bone. Yeah. So if I've got a strike mark and then subsequent strike marks, I can tell which order they happen based on the interruption of the concentric and radial fractures to the skull. Exactly. Yeah, you find you find I a strike hope point that made sense. Get, yeah. Well, hope, okay, so it, it makes sense it makes sense to me because that's what like we actually had yeah. done that before when we were in school we were doing mm-hmm. that and you know I've seen it and 
so yeah, it, it absolutely makes sense when you think about the the actual strike point, right? And so you find which the you find the strike points, and then you know if you think about it, just like you were saying, if you hit a windshield or a window, there's multiple strike yes. points, and when you find those, then you can see which one interrupted which one. So then you kind of you can see with the layers of it exactly. So my mentor saw my devotion and my unique technique of reconstructing her head. She said to me, Laura, I know you were passionate about this young woman. However, when I was watching you put her back together, you were doing it in a way that, and with patience, that's not typical. And so she said, you need to publish on how you've done this. So for the next few years, every time there was a cranial reconstruction case, she mm-hmm. had me do it. And then I did a publication for the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. I had a whole poster presentation on this. So it was a really big passion project of mine for the skull. And that victim in particular was the onset of my fascination with the skull. That is really awesome. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. I mean, it's a sad story, but it's a great story for you. And it's, uh, I, yeah. I believe that, you know, that that's something that I'm, yep. I'm assuming that the family actually appreciated. Well, I don't even know because I'm fine with them not knowing what I did because I don't know if they would in the way that it's very, all right, so when there's been a homicide, what a lot of people don't understand is that until that case has been fully adjudicated, because homicides have no- Statute of limitations. Thank, thank you. Yes. Statute of limitations, yeah. <laughs> That's what you're here for. Um, so <laughs> he did actually get arrested, so it's not like we had to wait a long time, but- While that is still a homicide case that is going through the legal system, any evidence of that case is held. So this becomes very complicated Mm -hmm. and difficult for families when, like, we had to keep her head until the case was over. So gotcha. Yeah. To them, this is yeah, yeah. So to so that can be something as simple as keeping a section, like a tiny section of the skull that maybe has like a a strike mark from sharp force trauma. That can Mm -hmm. mean so many different things. But for victims' families, they want to lay this person to rest. And this is very uncomfortable for them. Yes. Yes, definitely. I absolutely understand that and empathize with it. It's unfortunately... The nature of the beast when you want your loved one to have justice. So, yeah, that is something that's very difficult for people to struggle with internally is, well, they need this and it's kind of the law anyways, but I really would like to not bury my partial loved one, right? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Those are little things that kind of creep in that make it hard for us when we like know how it is. But then at the same time, you are not a dead inside human being. And you're like, I get that you hate this. I get that you hate this. I agree with why you hate this. But this is necessary, right? Absolutely. Well, like, tell me a Shelly skull thing to break up all this morbidity. Like... (laughs) What's a yeah. Shelly skull thing? 
Wow. So, uh, you know, I actually wanted to hit back on, you were talking about, you know, when, when the baby had fallen. So one of the things that mm -hmm. there was an, there was an accident that we went on a motor vehicle accident and mm -hmm. there was a child that was in a car seat and the child in the car seat was in the back seat, uh, properly restrained and everything. And a person in the front seat, one of the pass driver and passenger in the front seat and one of the people in the front seat ended up dying. Uh, the other person Aww. ended up living and, but they did have some major injuries and the, then there was another child in the back seat. So there were four passengers and one was, in, one was a smaller child that was in a car seat and the child that was in the car seat actually did not sustain major injuries at all. Yeah. They were very minor and it's because they are so pliable and because they aren't seeing an accident coming. So they don't tense up because when you tense up, and then you get hit with the vehicle, then, you know, or you get in, that, in an automobile accident, then your injuries can potentially become much worse because the way that the body, mechanics of the body. So that was interesting because, I, you know, I just wanted to, to kind of talk about that, how, you know, babies yeah. are definitely, you know, they, they don't understand or know that there's danger ahead of them. So they don't tense up for any reason. And the yeah. other, yeah, the other That's child That's what they in the say about drunk people. <laughs> That is what they say about drunk people. However, you know, I mean, hopefully no one's driving drunk. It's, you know, they're just uh, passengers drunk. <laughs> yes, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. And then I also wanted to, I didn't want to interrupt your story because your story was so interesting and I didn't want you to lose track. No, thank you. But there was another case that we, that, that I had where there was an autopsy and it was a, at the autopsy, the family wanted a piece of the person, they wanted their ponytail. Uh, apparently, this, yeah. the decedent had always wore a ponytail, and so they requested, oh. yeah, when, when they filled out the paperwork, they requested at the autopsy that we cut the ponytail off and save it for them. So, you know, there's there's little things like that that you do. Yeah. And, you know, for skulls, there's, you know, a couple stories, but the, the one that kind of just popped into my head was uh, botched surgery for cranial reconstruction. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So, you know, be careful where you uh, get your surgeries done. I mean, if you're, you know, we are in California. We have a lot of places where people like to go off-roading and they'll go off-roading oh. out East County and it's almost like the border of Mexico. And these, this is kind of a, a scary place because in these areas, if you get in an accident or if something bad happens, for instance, uh, you know, you're on a, a quad or you're on a, you know, a sand dune or a buggy or, you know, a side-by-side, -side, whatever you want to call it, then those accidents when they occur there's not a hospital nearby so either you have to be air oh no okay yeah you either have to like they have to air flight you out or uh you go to mexico and if you go to mexico oh god okay so if you go to mexico be careful because sometimes some of their doctors and especially in the, these areas sometimes their doctors are not the best at how they put your skull back together and oh my god Shelly oh my yeah. god yeah so you know I wish we could show photos but yes there's there's a crazy photo where it looks like a bicycle chain is pretty much on this person's face trying to keep it together uh you know we we all know that you know we have pins and rods and stuff like that when we break bones but you know when you break your face that skull that we love so much yeah yeah it feels a little bit different than a arm. Yeah. It absolutely does. And they also have to use they have to use different 
suture mechanisms as well as, you know, different yeah. titanium and, you know, different. I'm trying to think of the what's the word I'm, I'm thinking of the like but implants. Yes. Yes. Because, you know, if they do something wrong, you have a brain behind there that can't be punctured. <laughs> so exactly. You have to be careful. So, you know, they have to use different tools and, you know, different things. But yeah. Speaking so, of that, do you know what a trepanation yeah. is? Ooh, tell us what that is. Okay. So essentially, if you have significant trauma to your head, uh-huh. your your brain can swell because it's yes. tissue and there's blood flow to it. And yes. when that happens, your skull at a certain age doesn't have a lot of give. So there's no room yeah. for the brain to swell and it can cause a lot of problems so what they do is they cut a little hole in your skulls. Yes, they do. And they yeah. make room for that swelling. And it looks yeah, a exactly. little bit scary, but it's literally necessary for you to live. I know that, you know, you can have trepanation. And actually, I know someone who's had it done on their fingernail when you get a blood blister. Like if you smash your nail in the yeah, door. Yeah, it's like a hole. Yeah, they just drill a hole and it just releases the pressure. And, it you know, a lot of times it release, ends up releasing blood. Yeah. Yeah, but the yeah, trepanation. Yeah, because it can like generate heat and your yeah, brain so the, can boil in there. Well, yeah. So the, the trepanation in a fingernail, though, it's crazy to think about this because it's so much smaller than the trepanation in the skull. The skull is like a golf it, yeah. ball size. Yeah, as opposed to like. A, um, I, yeah, I would say a golf ball or a quarter. Okay, yeah, so like most of the ones I've seen are like a quarter size or a half dollar. Maybe half half dollar. I don't know. How big is a golf ball? Okay, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to act like I really, I, I can hit a ball. Um, okay, so yeah, maybe a half dollar. <laughs> well, to your point, though, Shelly, like all of these like medical implants that you're talking about cranially mm-hmm. and things like trepanations, these are all individual characteristics that we can use postmortem. So absolutely. I have seen like a healed trepanation before in a postmortem exam of skeletal remains. I have seen. Uh, metal implants, both with teeth, mm-hmm. replacing like the maxilla or elements of the mandible and or parts of the skull. By the way, I'm assuming, oh God, I'm, I'm about to age myself. For those of you like me who had the majority of your childhood in the late 80s or 90s, if you remember the show Pete and Pete, when the mom no had a metal plate I'm in her head, what are you even talking about? <laughs> I loved Pete and Pete. It was in on the Nickelodeon. Late 80s or 90s? Oh my. When Lord. I was young in the late 80s and not, or like the 90s. The Don't 90s, get mad. Yeah. Okay. The 90s, right. well, which was, by the way, the best decade ever. I, I love the that 90s. To be true. I don't believe that to be true. Well, the 90s was pretty rad I, because the music was pretty awesome. I know. But I mean, Big am I bands. hating on the 80s? The 80s were, were amazing. You know, 70s mm-hmm. were pretty good too. Just saying. I know. Sorry, I'm aging myself now. <laughs> you are definitely not aging yourself. You are clearly a person who utilizes moisturizer, so you look great. Yes, yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I remember you telling me that I was 21. I said, yeah, you're 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 having your like, I don't know, like 15th annual 21st birthday or something like 15th that. 15th annual 21st birthday. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's pretty damn old. I'm not that old. <laughs> well, that would 15th annual 21st birthday would make you 
I can't even do the math on that. So I wasn't trying to insult plus, you. <laughs> 21 plus 15. 15. Yeah, no, it's that's, not bad. Okay. Okay. So yeah, I was going to say, it's not that bad. I didn't like make you seem like I'm, I'm older know, geriatric. Than so you're oh, older than what I said. And I was, yes, so that I was I being complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're about that age. Yeah. Yes, I am. I'm actually older yeah. than that too. So I was not insulting you, my sweet friend. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so there's this thing inside of our brains. I'm sorry, inside of our skulls and it's called, it's called our brain. And for me, yeah. sometimes when there's shiny things, it just, it just has its way with, you know, oh, we just, ooh, pretty, very pretty. So apologies. Yeah. For My me, apologies. it's like, ooh, a piece of cheese. Ooh, a piece of cheese. Ooh, a piece of cheese. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. So, okay. Okay. But uh, tell me more. Yes. Tell me more. I have so, so much more. Okay. So one case that really stands out and conveniently, I was also a student. Not that all of my cases, by the way, that stand out are from when I was a student, but this was really, really cool because we even got to be involved with America's Most Wanted on this case. Oh, I love that. I know. So while I was studying under my en- my mentor, there was eight skeletons found in a wooded area in Florida by my university. Okay. And... We worked with the Florida Department of Law Enforcement on the search and recovery of those remains because they had been there for quite some time. So there were things like animal scavenging that had come into play. So the remains were kind of scattered throughout. And the cool thing about this case was, well, A, literally everything – It was associated with a serial killer. I'm not going to call it out because I don't believe in giving serial killers additional credence. And again, I don't know how the victim's families feel about this. So there were eight skeletons found in Florida. And we spent a lot of time recovering all the skeletal material we could. And then Mm -hmm. my cohort, meaning the other students that were part of the master's program with me and I – and my mentor mm-hmm. spent a really long time <laughs> matching up bones with who they belong to. And what we ended up determining is that all of these skeletons were from males that oh. were showing traits skeletally as Hispanic. Now, I say it that way because you can look externally more dominant towards one ancestral group like European, African, Asian, Mm -hmm. uh, South American, but your skeletal material might default to the ancestral roots that you have of someone else. So that's why in anthropology, we always say we're doing our best, right? Because- Yeah. Right. Like we do our best. So these were all Hispanic skeletal males within their- general 30s. Oh, okay. And it was fascinating to uncover that because I was already tasked with doing that skeletal reconstruction project. And Mm -hmm. additionally, my mentor and I had decided on a, I'm sorry, the cranial reconstruction project on a skull or cranial foundation for my master's thesis. So I was the head girl, basically. <laughs> I was all nice. about the skulls. I know. Right, so. so so she had assigned me 
to go through and validate the cranial suture aging that we discussed in episode one. Now, Mm -hmm. I want to re-articulate from that episode that this is the least reliable way to do a skeletal analysis of age. However, sometimes it's all you got. So we have to do our best, right? Luckily, for the majority of these remains, the uh, cranial age was within a nice deviation from what the postcranial material told us. So it wasn't that far off, Okay, which is fantastic. Now, I also want to say that there was a lot of taphonic change. Now, we've referenced this in an earlier episode, but... I guess I shouldn't assume that everybody has listened to all of our episodes, even though they they listen out of order. (laughs) Maybe they listen (laughs) out of order. Okay. So a taphonic change is a change due to the environment. So these remains were found in a wooded area, and there was not there was a lot of dry change. There was a lot of like discoloration due to the ground, due to Mm -hmm. plant life. There was, I know I mentioned animal scavenging earlier, but the element of- Yeah, animal activity, definitely. Right. So that just doesn't occur in like an animal grabbing like a hand and running away with it. That also means that like there's little like teeth marks and that Mm -hmm. affects the integrity of the skeletal remains. So that means that there were things that were broken, things that were like- frayed things that were yeah like so while I'm doing this suture aging there were things that had been like gnawed on and so it was really a cool project for me to learn how to work around challenges since I had spent so much time around the skull and to compound upon that since I've referenced this several times what my mentor and I determined I should study for my master's thesis is cranial markers of nutritional change. And the reason why I made it significant is to show areas of stress that could potentially be due to malnutrition or abuse. Now, the way that I did that, yeah. So you, as I mentioned in episode one, Wolf's Law, bone changes with yes. life. And that's not just pressure that you place on bone, it's also nutritional, right? Like, yeah. oh, drink milk. It'll be good for your bones, yada, yada, yada. Yes. Right? Yes. So if you are not having all of the vitamins and minerals and nutrients that you need to be healthy, your bone will react. And what I studied was something called And don't worry, like I'm about to say words, okay? Like, don't worry, I'll explain it. (laughs) I studied something called parotid hyperostosis. Okay. And something called cribra orbitalia, and I measured it along with something called linear enamel hyperplasia. Okay. Okay. All right. I gotcha. So so let me break down those words. Yeah. Parotid hyperostosis. So Mm -hmm. the word parotid, I think we can all figure out that porous. Yes hyperostosis. So let me make this simple. Your head, like when you put your hands on top of your head, yes. those, those where your fingers come together and then where your hands wrap around down by your ears, those are your parietal bones. Yes. Those bones, if you are deficient in iron or some proteins and amino acids, there will literally start to look like somebody has come along and poked holes in your head. And that can 
float down into the occipital, which is that big, thick bone on the very, very back of your head that we yes. had you hold. Yes, that's the, the mm-hmm. supposedly the, the strongest bone yes. in the skull. That's right. And a very awesome forensic anthropologist named Patty Stewart McAdam, I studied her research extensively, and she was actually able to metric the severity of that porosity. So there was like a millimeter scale. There was images that you could quantify this. Yeah. Now, additionally, Cribra or Battaglia is literally the same exact porosities, only Orbitalia, eye orbits. Yeah. Now, if you want to put your fingers on your eyebrows – And then imagine the fact that your bone of your skull then goes back to facilitate the crib of your eye. Yes. On the very, very roof. So like for some of us, you can, depending on how you're skeletally structured in your head, you can actually feel that ridge where your bone then starts to go in. Yeah, it's like when when people say, oh my gosh, I have a headache and they put their their thumbs like right above. Right underneath their eyebrows. Right under the eyebrows. They push on in their orbital socket and they're like, oh, I have a headache. Exactly. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. So that roof of your eye orbit will get those same partition or like little holes. It almost looks like a sponge. It does when it's very, very severe. Now, sometimes only the eyes happen. And sometimes only the parietals or the occipital or the top of your head will happen. Yeah. Now, I wasn't really able to determine in my research the difference between which one onsets when. I just know that it happens typically with iron deficiency anemia. Now, the other big word that I used, linear enamel hypoplasia. Okay, so linear lines, enamel, Mm -hmm. the enamel of your teeth. Hypoplasia. Okay, let's get into what I mean by that. As we are growing, your adult teeth are being formed. So that enamel is being laid down. And as we mentioned in part one, teeth are acellular. So as this is being laid down, it's not like a living thing that grows. If you are lacking the proper nutrition, Mm -hmm. as your teeth are being formed, Like, uh, on a horizontal way, there will be a disruption in the laying down of that enamel, and it will create little ridges. Now, the cool thing about that is we can relatively metric tooth formation to age. So the purpose of my research was, does parotic hyperostosis or cribra orbitalia exist? And if it does, is it comorbid or along with? Linear enamel hypoplasia. Because if it is, I am able to say this lack of nutrition occurred in childhood, possibly within this age range. And I even viewed teeth that had several layers of linear enamel hypoplasia, which means that in youth, that person never had great nutrition at multiple points of their life. Yeah. Now, what I was hoping to do was be able to use this as modern a modern-day indicator mm-hmm. of childhood abuse because the child oh, was not okay. being properly cared for or provided for. So yeah. sorry, guys. This isn't our typical episode. <laughs> I just got very sciencey. <laughs> so on that note – 
Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Crime Scene Queens. And as Laura so graciously said, if you want to reach <laughs> out to us, please email us at hello at crimescenequeens.com. Don't forget to follow us and message us on social media. And make sure that you tell your friends and listen to all of our other episodes, especially the one prior to this one, so you kind of understand what we're talking about. Yeah, so it's in context. Yeah. Uh, to put everything in context, and then you can say, oh, I gotcha now, or no, you big dummy, this is what it is. No. Anyway, so you can listen to all those, uh, all of our previous episodes on any platform, such as Apple, Spotify, Google, even Amazon. Amazon, all of yeah. that. Well, as we always say, if you're going to die, do your local crime scene unit a favor and keep it interesting. Or at least give us a lot of evidence when you do it. But we love you so much. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Crime Scene Queens is a Q-Code Media production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Nate Dufort. And theme song and music by Darren Johnson. 